I'm Brady Harden, and welcome back to the Life After Podcast. On today's episode, I speak with my friend Michelle about neurodiversity and recovering from eating disorders. But before that, let me explain why I've been gone for over a year and a half. I had three episodes recorded and ready to go, but I was hit with a curveball. As many of you know, I come from a pretty difficult home life, but have been able to have a healthy and good relationship with my ex-wife, co-parenting. Over COVID and a time after, we were getting some bad friction from my mom of her trying to overstep boundaries, not listening to us when it came to COVID restrictions and who we wanted him to be around. And we had to eventually take a six-month break. No communication for our mental health. But at the end of that, the goal was to get mediation. Instead, we were met with a letter from her lawyer. She was suing us. Little did we know that in Missouri, there's a grandparent's law that if a grandparent is kept away from the grandkid for over six months, and only if the parents are divorced, then the grandparent can try to sue for visitation. We had to get lawyers. We had to get a guardian in term, which is like a third-party lawyer who represented our son. And everything that we have and all the evidence shows there's not a reason to allow her to have visitation. But unfortunately, in Missouri, it's up to a judge. So for the last year and a half, we've been stuck in this horrible legal situation, knowing that anything I said or did on the podcast was going to be used against me, and it absolutely was. In fact, it was described as crushing and killing Christian people, which if you've listened to this podcast, you know how absurd that is. But in Missouri, the legal system eats that stuff up. My goal now is to take the last three episodes that I had ready and to release those and ask the listeners if you would be able to give to a GoFundMe to help with the legal expenses. If you go on GoFundMe and search for sued by evangelical mom, you should be able to find me. Another thing that's made this difficult is I got laid off from my job right as all this went down. So yeah, it's been a difficult time, but we're holding through and things are going to be okay. I'm learning a lot. Speaking of which, uh, in this episode, I want to to sit down and talk to somebody about neurodiversity, uh, especially as making this podcast and through my deconstruction, I realized that my brain operates different than people's. And that revelation was big for me, realizing whether I'm on a spectrum or ADHD, getting medication for that, reading ways to help myself and to help myself excel. All these have been huge in my growth and realizing how much they've affected my deconstruction. So take a listen to this conversation. I hope it's helpful for you. And again, if you're able to help with the GoFundMe, uh, search for Sued by Evangelical Mom or contact me at Brady. Harden at gmail.com. Thank you so much and enjoy this episode. Let me put on that for you a little bit. Welcome to the Life After Michelle. How are you? I'm doing all right. Um, you've been around the show and on the page for a while now. Um, how did you end up hearing about the show, by the way? I was in treatment for my eating disorder and one of my therapists mentioned it with, um, particularly Jamie. And she's, oh, wow. Episode four. Yeah. I love that therapists know about 
the show. And when I found out some therapists like recommend the show to their patients, I just that uh, I cried the first time that I heard that I was on a business trip and I was texting back and forth with my therapist. He's like, Oh, by the way, I recommended the show to somebody and they're really enjoying it. And I'm like, what? And it was, I don't know. It was just so gratifying to hear that it's helping helpers help people. <laughs> yeah. It's really, um, I think a lot of, well, a lot of the people that I've encountered who are deconstructing kind of know what they're doing because they're getting to know themselves. Um, but I think they feel lonely. Mm. And so connecting with others in the community is really beneficial. I know that even for myself, having that now, as opposed to not having it during the time that I was really deconstructing is it, it was so different because I felt I was going through all of this alone. I didn't really know too many other people who did, you know, and so I started mm-hmm. messaging Chuck and a couple other people and we had a little message group for a while that was really validating, but once we were able to start to like a bigger community, God, that was so cool to see, <laughs> you know, just people coming out of the woodwork and being like, Oh, I'm not the only one. Great. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Um, and what did your fundamentalist background look like? I grew up in Houston and it's really interesting. My family and I went to a really small church where I was related to like, I don't know, like a third of the people. Oh no. Um, And actually that was real. Everybody moved away when I was, I don't know, in preschool age and it kind of dissipated. So really when I remember that church, it's very like warm and fuzzy Um, after that, my parents looked for churches, but never really found one. And then we moved to a new house and the new house needed lots of work. And the only day available my parents had was Sunday. And so they would work on the house, um, but would take me to church. And I was very, I felt very obligated to go at that time. I was attending Bible churches or a Southern Baptist church. What are the differences between those two from what you remember? The theology is really similar. Southern Baptists seem more sure that they're the only ones. <laughs> I was Southern Baptist and that sounds, that sounds, that sounds right. <laughs> I think that's part of what drew me to it was that sh- assuredness, that sense that this really is the right path. Like we are the ones who've got it figured out the best. Mm that really connected with like parts of my personality. And um, within this last year, I was diagnosed as autistic. And I think that that probably really tied in with my sense of like black and white. Um, We're going to do things the right way and need for structure. I relate with that deeply. Um, I haven't had an official diagnosis, but reading so much and doing self-evaluations and self-test and, Oh shit, this stuff is really helpful to me. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. understanding kind of my ADHD and understanding how that's affected by deconstruction, but also how I looked at fundamentalism. Like you said, it it provided that assurance for us. 
But now that we understand what that insurance isn't real, it feels like uh, we were duped, right? But mm-hmm. what does that assurance look like for you now? Because I've realized I still have it, but it's just done completely different. Like it's not, oh, this needs to be the one way, so I need to follow it. It's more of, like you said, we are finding ourselves and we can we can find it. You know, um, what did that look like for you or how would you word your experience with that? I think one of the things I think about with this as it relates to my deconstruction is when I first really sat down and was like, I'm going to figure out what I think about gay people. So I was married. <laughs> I was married in an I kiss dating goodbye kind of marriage. And it sounds familiar um, to me. I don't know why, but okay, yeah, keep going, <laughs> keep going. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to grad school and I was in my counseling classes and the American Counseling Association had come out with a white paper about um, reparative therapy. Mm-hmm. And I'm in school in Texas. So many people are Christians and many people want to bring that into the therapy room. And so that was always something kind of talked about in class, but this was really heated. And I was like, oh, I have to figure out what I think. Cause I don't know that I have a big opinion about this topic, but apparently it's very heated and I should figure that out. So I downloaded some research articles from, you know, the medical journals and then like sat down with my Bible. And I actually started with the journal articles and I didn't get very far because the data is terrible. Really? Yeah. And methods are abusive. So I was like, I obviously am not going to have anything to do with this. This cannot be the way that either my profession or my faith are going to be lived out. Um, and that was probably the most pivotal um, moment in really throwing me into deconstruction. Um, because I started thinking, well, there are all these Christians who do think that being gay is fine and maybe they have a point. So I'm going to start paying attention to them. And after that, everything kind of unraveled. But I think that need, that deep need to know of like what's right and what's wrong and what works and what doesn't and like being very black and white about things really played into that moment. I respect that. I think a lot of people talk down on people who need that assurance, who need to know what's right. But when I look back at it, when we're dealing with the things that the Bible claims we're dealing with, the threats of going to hell for eternity or for heaven, then it seems like, yeah, having some assurance and understanding of what's happening, like a firm grasp is a pretty logical (laughs) thing to do. Um, And I think that's what I've been sort of understanding fundamentalism now is taking the Bible to the most like logical extent. And then it's strange that like people get upset of like, oh, well, why do you care about that stuff? So, well, because if it's real, it really, really matters. Um, But Mm -hmm. getting out of that cycle of realizing, oh, there's other ways to interpret this or to look at this um, situation, then it all gets shaky and things start to unravel a lot. 
I love that you did that while searching for answers on gay people, but I know you personally, and I know that you're not married in an I kiss dating uh, goodbye sort of way anymore. So I guess like you started to find some self-discovery while searching that out. What did that look like? How was that journey? Intimacy with my husband was always awkward and often Mm. actually sometimes really painful. Um, And I kept thinking like, well, I don't like it because it hurts or. um, And also like when I would think like, what if I'm gay? I'd be like, but I'm married, so I can't be. Mm. Doesn't even make sense. Um, In the end, my husband asked for the divorce and I was really shocked and startled and um, kind of traumatized by it. Yeah. I think had we stayed married for another year, I would have sort of, I would have come to some realizations on my own about myself. This is really starting to think about them in that like place in your mind before language, um, but not really even acknowledging them to myself. I came out to myself and my friends about a year and a half after I was divorced. Um, and then within a couple of years after that, I was out to everybody. Wow. That's a lot of change and self-discovery, but just yeah. so much freedom in that eventually it, it feels it was, so restrictive at first, you know, I was really excited when I realized I wanted to like stand on the rooftops and like tell the world because I'm sure <laughs> about my sexuality, but I wanted to be like, Oh my gosh, y'all I'm gay. That it, it was very exciting to me. The, the whole I'm coming out, I want the world to know, you know, that's where it comes from. Yeah. <laughs> what other things do you remember being big pivotal changes in your deconstruction or just how your thinking hmm. went? One thing I noticed is you started with reading the journals and then read the Bible. Uh, you know, just like even that like prioritization is so different than how we looked at things while we were fundamentalist. So, you know, glad that your uh, professional was able to kind of snap um, some other influences in there. But um, are there any other themes that you remember? I think I was already calling myself an atheist by this time, but a big theme in eating disorder recovery is kind of coming home and settling into the body and allowing myself that kind of embodiment is directly oppositional to the idea that as a woman, my body is really my husband's or as a fallen human, my body is primarily the host for the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah. Everything was just there for them. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about what you were talking, the embodiment of what you said about coming home to the body. I love that language. I'm curious of what deconstruction colliding with disordered eating, et cetera, what that kind of looked like, if you don't mind me asking. There's a really powerful moment. This is when I was in treatment in St. Louis. Um, so it would have been shortly before, like a month before I met you at that party, the 
it was a season one party. And I just realized that some of the things that happened in my marriage were not okay. We're actually rape. And at the same time, so like that's happening on one side. And at the same time, I'm really doing all this, this thinking about like stopping the dissociation and coming home and settling into my body and realizing like how, how as a, as a girl and a woman, like I couldn't ever be home in my body because my body was something for men and the Holy spirit, which is still a male figure. Yeah. I just remember like not even being able to talk when I kind of recognized all of that. And that's actually after I was identifying as an atheist, it just was so visceral and powerful. A big part of eating disorder recovery is learning to eat intuitively. And so being connected with the body and being hungry and being full and using internal cues and not like external diet plans or whatever. And like, you can't do that if you're constantly worried about being a vessel for someone or something else. Hmm. The idea that humans and the body and like who we are as people is innately good is also very much part of what I trained, what I was trained in as a therapist and directly oppositional to my practice, at least how I understood Christianity and which was pretty Calvinistic. Same. Right. Um, you know, if everything from us is untrustworthy, then it would make sense to put emphasis on like external things, like what the body looks like or, um, you know, numbers, like what do I weigh and what size am I wearing? And I think that um, keeping women thin goes along with keeping women subjected and submissive. There's a control element to that. Yeah. I always think of that prison experiment. I I forget the name of it. Um, And I know this is an extreme example, but within Christianity, it kind of does build up those two different sides, men owning, being above women, um, and then the submission. And so that those relationships are kind of like built there and made. And the whole point of the prison experiment was seeing that when people are given the authority and the submissive roles, that the worst of us comes out and we play into those roles. We lean into them. So that control is built into it. And because you are a, in a woman's body are automatically just subjected from your father, you, you're owned by your father and then you're owned by a husband. But then over the entire time you're owned by God and the Holy spirit, there's nothing that was yours. And when it came to like teaching us that we were evil, it wasn't just to make us feel bad, but not to trust our own voices. Yes. And that blows me away. Uh, looking back at how harmful that is. Think the void that we got our voices back, right? Mm-hmm. 
what you said earlier, Collect, of having those feelings before there's even language yet. And that mm-hmm. kind of like permeates and percolates, especially for us who are on a spectrum or neurodiverse. Um, can you speak to that process a little bit? Well, I got the idea originally from Steven Pinker, um, who writes about the psychology of language. And I can't remember the name of the book, but I read it when I was a senior in college. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. That happened. I totally know what he's talking about. That happens to me. I think about things in a way. And then, then the language comes later. So on one hand, all humans do that. At the same time, I may think more in an image or in abstract objects or something than, than, than my neurotypical peers. And I never knew that. I would recommend welcoming that, allowing it and sitting with it, kind of befriending those, that type of thought that comes before words. I think many people would use art or music um, to express that. And I, I mean, I, I encourage my friends and my clients you know, to, to do that. I think it's an important way of getting to know yourself. Hmm. If somebody's working through their understanding or uh, disordered eating or eating disorders um, and trying to get the language for that specifically, Mm -hmm. what kind of awareness can we have and things to look for of getting our voices embodied and back to where they belong to where we can hear ourselves? Oh, that's a really good question. I think specific to eating disorders, moving away from numbers is really helpful. You you mentioned that earlier and that, that mm-hmm. clicked with me when you said a diet, because again, that's not listening to what's inside, but to fit an outside gospel <laughs> or, you know, to fit an outside command, et cetera. Yeah. People with eating disorders often are very divorced from the body. Um, The eating disorder itself can be dissociative and to like pull you away from the physical experiences or the physical sensations that are happening um, intentionally and like as a byproduct. Um, And so reconnecting with or relearning how to be connected with the body can be really powerful because it connects you back to, I mean, physiologically, it connects you back to like hunger cues and fullness cues and things like that. But it metaphorically and psychologically also like connects you back to the self instead of identifying the self through this external um, idea. I mean, external idea. Something for us to conform to. Yeah. And in a very, it's both, right? Like eating disorders are both all about the food and not at all about the food. And I think that talking about like, well, if my, if I allow myself X, Y, Z things that I can eat, um, and then I do that, then I'm safe and I'm good. Um, like externalizes these internal needs and desires, and if we let ourselves sink in to who we are, then those become more vulnerable 
and honest. Um, but that is very different from both what diet culture and I, what my experience of Christianity was. My experience of Christianity was like, don't be connected to yourself. Humans are bad and evil. You know, um, every inclination of your heart is, you, yeah, all that. Yeah, jazz. that. Yeah. <laughs> that, that crap. <laughs> yeah. You said that eating disorder is both all about the food and not. Uh, can you explain that more and expound on that? that? That's interesting to me. Yeah. So, um, you can't treat an eating disorder without also treating or considering like what the person is eating or not eating or what they're doing with food um, and what their relationship with food is like. And also it's really about all these other psychological processes that are happening that are like parallel and symbolized in what they're doing with food. So it is personally, right? Like I meet with my dietitian or my therapist and we do, we talk about like what I've eaten, but, or haven't eaten. Um, but then, right. Like that's important and it's necessary and part of recovery. And if we don't also look at the emotional, relational, social aspects of all of that, we're really never going to get anywhere. A lot of, it comes back to our childhoods, obviously how we were raised, our parents' attitudes and what we were brought up with. And, no, from my family, eating disorders and food was fat phobia was such a difficult thing. Um, my dad had unrealistic expectations and voiced those, was very patriarchal um, and stuck and created unhealthy cycles uh, towards some people in my family. And what I hear you saying with the food is these cycles come in my head, just like it's the frame of how we have talked about um, shame cycles, right? We, we feel bad. We find a, something to fill it. Then, then that goes, mm-hmm. goes in there. Is that kind of similar to, I'm assuming it, it, it's just substituting one thing for another. Um, I think in terms of cycles, it's often um, eating disorder behaviors binging, purging, restricting are avoidance behaviors. So something difficult is happening. I don't want to feel something. I'm going to disconnect from whatever's going on eternally. I use an eating disorder behavior, but then afterwards, um, I feel shame for doing this thing that I don't want to be doing, which is uncomfortable. And so then I want to avoid it. And it's a very, um, very much an overview, right? Like it's way more intricate and detailed per person, but that cycle is definitely part of it. The word avoidance helped. That just clicked with me of trying to avoid something to run into that. Yes, that makes sense. Have you seen The Way Down on HBO? I have not. I want to sign up for HBO so bad just to watch that because the way down diet is the only diet book I've ever read. You've read it. Tell me about that. So I was sophomore in college. Um, I borrowed the book from my mom, 
weight. Okay. So weight down the weight on diet takes what takes intuitive eating to an extreme and it ties in a bunch of evangelical crap Mm -hmm. and also ties in the idea that if you're doing intuitive eating correctly, you will be thin, which is false. Um, intuitive eating is about being connected with your body and your hunger cues and fullness cues and does not guarantee one body size or another. In fact, uh, many people in eating disorder recovery or recovered from eating disorders have larger bodies and they are intuitively eating. So it's obviously erroneous. How um, does the way down pervert that? Like, cause it's, it's always interesting to me whenever Somebody like recently, I just read uh, or watched a documentary about that. I don't want to bring it up because it's triggering, but the Nexium cult. And what I found interesting about it is it took minus the misogyny and all that other fucking bullshit, but took like things that I would actually be like, you know what? I like this shit because it's not based on, you know, supernatural narratives or anything. It's just, it's the first parts of it are pretty helpful for people uh, from what they say. But it's interesting to me that they take something that I would see as helpful and then take it to the extreme to where it's harmful again. And to hear that the way down incorporates intuitive eating is frustrating. It makes me want to shake them, but how did they run with that in a way that was harmful? Um, intuitive eating is often used in diet culture settings to, so that it's not like people can say that it's a non-diet approach, but if the assumption is that you will lose weight and the assumption is that if you're doing it correctly, you will be thin, then it's a diet. Wow. And so what she does is teach some of those principles, but the assumption is that you'll be thin. And then she ties into the, into it. Um, okay. And honestly, it's been 20 years. So like I could be misquoting, but <laughs> what I remember was like, Jesus loves you more if you're thin, because then you're not sinning. It's all tied that into obedience. Right. So, so it sounds like it's not, so it sounds like the way that it's abusing intuitive eating is at the same time it's saying, listen to yourself. It's also telling you to change your internal voice. And that's not the same thing as listening. <laughs> right. You can't listen to your internal voice and then judge how well you're doing that by external, uh, like an external, uh, what's it called? Rubric. That makes sense. I've never really understood what the word rubric means, but in that context, I'm like, you know, I get it now. <laughs> oh, a rubric is used for grading. Um, subjective things by breaking it down into more objective steps. And that's such an important thing. I I think even in deconstruction, right? Because it it kind of allows us to take little parts apart and say, okay, can we, is this helpful? Is this actually doing whatever? Uh, But yeah, putting that, putting your internal intuition to that external expectations while, while defining those expectations, that's a, that's a, that's an abusive practice. That's really messed up. It Hmm. is. Um, It is. And I, I carried it with me into recovery, you know, 
there's a book called intuitive eating and it's foundational for eating disorder recovery. And um, I think this is really fascinating. So I read their, this next part is the interesting part. I read their first edition and kind of walked away with it probably because of what I'd read from way down, but also from some of the things that they'd said in the book, thinking if I do this, if I'm doing intuitive eating correctly, then I'll be thin. And I already had questions because I had, I've always had like a larger body for someone with anorexia than what would be expected. And years later, I finally started working with a dietitian and reread it. And I reread like a third edition or something. And the women who wrote the book had listened to their readers and changed the language that kind of implied that that thinness would be the outcome to clarify that, no, that's not what we're saying at all. Obviously, Way Down does not do that. <laughs> right. You, they, you can't go back and change fundamentally what you say. I'm glad that she did that. What You know, she has intuition. She's listening. That what a good author uh, for her to have changed that. Um, what I hear when I was watching the Way Down documentary, uh, which I highly recommend for anyone, the docu series, they interview people who were involved with it, and it's not just the harmfulness of the weight loss, but also just the other toxicity of that of that culture that was created there in that church. But it wrapped in so much of what I used to call and had as a Calvinist uh, lordship theology. Um, and we, I remember having this idea that if you struggled with a certain sin for a long time, then that's showing that you may not actually be a child of God. And so if you're struggling, then you have to mm-hmm. question it. And it sounds like this sort of shit played on the same dogmatic fundamentalism that like Paul Washer uh, would get behind, but hers was all result based on weight loss. And I just, God, that's just so, so harmful. I think that she must have had, I the, the way down book isn't enough to like create a whole church on. And so she must have had more theology involved, but and I, I really would like to see the documentary, but my understanding is that the followers also followed the way down principles. Um, and I can definitely see that being rigid and dogmatic and harmful. They created a strange power structure because the leadership were all expected to be a certain size and to look a certain way. Um, and people were taught that their bodies were, like you had said before, a little visual sign of their obedience and their dedication to God. And that's just not found anywhere in the Bible. Uh, But the rest of the theology that they were based on was lordship plus charismatic uh, teachings. And so that was the base of her beliefs and her theology. And the way down you start to realize it was just kind of like the visual reproducible part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what made it get the legs and become so when it's brought up, I'm always surprised of how many people say, Oh yeah, I've read that. Or my mom has read that. Um, I mean, that book was everywhere. It seems. Yeah. Did you do any classes or anything with it? Or was it just the book? No. And, I don't know that there were any, I was in such a small town. I was in Nacogdoches. 
Where exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, so Nacogdoches is a small town in East Texas of about 36,000. Okay. 12,000 of those are the students of Stephen F. Austin State University. Go Jacks. Beautiful. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so if there was one, I didn't know about it. it. There certainly wasn't one happening. And the church associated with my campus ministry. And um, I don't know of anyone else in the campus ministry who is as focused on, um, I mean, it was a diet, but I wasn't calling it a diet. I was too cool for that. <laughs> Eating healthy and exercising. For the Lord. Compulsively. <laughs> oh, man. We do need to take a break. When we get back, if you don't mind, I want to talk more about deconstructing while neurodivergent as well. Uh, okay. Because it, in my experience, I had to deconstruct a lot of things at once that overlapped. And when you realize, oh, the way I think is one of the things, then it affects all of the other ones as well. <laughs> um, so yeah, I want to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, so we will be right back right after that. I wanted to take a moment and thank everyone who has given to the GoFundMe so far. It has been such a lifesaver, especially with losing my job and just trying to make ends meet and keeping myself above water. Thank you all so much. It has been such a huge help. For the rest of you, if you're interested, if you search for Sued by My Evangelical Mom, uh, you should be able to find me on there. Um, or if you wanted to give directly, my email is bradyharden at gmail.com. In addition to that, if you have connections to another podcast or something along those lines where I can maybe share the story as well, uh, contact me and let me know, and I would be happy to reach out to them. Thank you so much. For a second, I thought she just snorted something like cocaine or something. No, it's a sniff that I do. Uh, and I think it's part, it's half allergies and half a stim. I, uh, uh, you know what? We're just going to jump in. What, what stimming do you experience? Okay. Um, if you don't mind me asking, is that a personal question? I don't know. No, how to ask do you want me to questions. explain stimming or do you think the audience? Yeah, knows? if you could. Um, Give us an explanation. And yeah, for sure. Okay. So stimming stands, stimming is short for self-stimulation, which always sounds a little bit naughty. Mm -hmm. um, and all humans stim. Um, it's just that if you're stimming in the way that most people do, nobody notices. And if you do it in ways that are outside the norm, like flapping your hands or um, I rock during my sessions in my rocking chair or humming loudly in public places, then people notice and think it's weird. But all humans stim, and it helps regulate the nervous system. And it's I, different with people on the spectrum. That's kind of a um, side, of, side effects. Is that the right word? Or is... It's just people on the spectrum tend to have um, atypical sensory experiences. And so we experience sensory perception differently than neurotypical people. And so we might stim in ways that are comfortable to us, but different from what most folks do. So most folks. This is mine. Uh, my, I had to do my thumb to my finger, each one of my fingers on a line. My feet always moving, legs always moving. <laughs> Those are kind of the ones that I uh, caught myself and be like, oh, 
That's what that is. Huh. That sounds so weird. I quote that now. <laughs> yeah. And um, masking is when a nerve, well, actually, I think masking is used like, um, like a gay man who is like repressing anything effeminate might be masking or mm-hmm. someone pretending who's super anxious, but pretending not to be anxious is masking. But it's usually used to talk about neurotypical, neurodiverse people pretending to be neurotypical. Um, and so when I was diagnosed, there were stims that I did, but then there were also some that I just started allowing myself to do like rocking. I really like to rock and I really like to swing and had not done those things since childhood. And it's, I'm, I rock, I got a recliner that rocks for my sessions. Well, it's had that. I'm sorry. You do rock Michelle. Continue. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, but like I rock during my sessions I was worried that clients would have a negative feedback or something for that. And nobody's commented, but I have had um, been in some trainings where the other professional was like, it's really soothing that you do that. Like, oh, I'm glad you did it too. I didn't notice it until you you mentioned it um, because it's very subtle. And also just the way your background is. You have this cream colored chair that m- matches your your tapestry. It It's such a beautifully like, Framed, you know what you're doing. You know what you are doing. But it, um, yeah, it's just such a subtle thing that um, oh, people just kind of. It is soothing, you know. It adds kind of a rhythm, and I, I have tried to give myself permission to move more as well because I going through school. The funny thing is, I grew up with brothers who showed their neurodiversities in ways that got my parents to read books about them and to really like, how do we help? And I I remember like one of my stepbrothers had ADHD so bad. He had to like time his showers because if not, they would just go. So all the, but I was the good kid, the rule follower. And I tried Mm -hmm. to fit into that. So I didn't know what was going on with me until just a few years while still making this podcast <laughs> and just like a couple seasons in, I was like, Oh, Oh, and things just started to click. I learned so much about myself. And I remember even asking one of my parents, I was like crying. <laughs> uh, was there any indication as a kid that, you know, that I'm, maybe on a spectrum or anything. And there just wasn't an answer. And it just kind of like that hurt because it's like, because I masked stuff, I didn't become the squeaky wheel who gets the attention of it. And I was always afraid of, I wanted to write a book about my deconstruction and coming out, but I was afraid to, because I thought in the back of my mind, if I share too much of myself, somebody could read this and easily diagnose me. And I want to know what, who, Mm. how, why I am Mm -hmm. before somebody else. And it was always kind of like this quiet mystery going on in the back of my mind that I was trying to solve. And once the solution came, it felt like that hard, that part of my hard drive then can be used toward things that I can guide it to instead of running all of these processes mm-hmm. in the background. And so kind of allowing myself to understand my neurodiversities closed a whole bunch of programs 
and a whole bunch of tabs because I didn't need them anymore. Mm-hmm. And I was able to kind of, what was your experience like with that? You shared a little bit earlier, but I wouldn't. Yeah. So, um, like I said, I, I developed an eating disorder when I was in college and then um, was very quickly diagnosed with an anxiety, just generalized anxiety disorder. Now, 20 years later, like other things have been added to that. And eventually I was like, there's no way I have this many diagnoses. If I were my client, I'd think this was weird and I would want them to get a full assessment. So full assessment is done with like normed tests. There's usually some computerized ones that test your cognitive speed and things like that. And um, it's something I would like to do in my practice, but I don't do yet. I have a friend who does them, but you can't see a friend. So he referred me to somebody. And um, when I first made my appointment, I was like, I just really feel like something's going on, but I don't know what it is. And it's, we're missing something in this clinical picture and it's getting in the way of me really getting better. It was really having a lot of depression symptoms. Um, and then I got really nervous and went through a list of things that I was really scared I had and re- you know, like went through and like pulled up my DSM and like looked at them all and like, these aren't it. These aren't it. <laughs> Here are the and diagnosis codes. <laughs> I have worked with kids with autism since I graduated undergrad. Well, I actually have a master's degree, two master's degrees, but that one was done in concurrence with undergrad. So I, it never crossed my mind because I'm a grown up and their kids. And also because a lot of my kids also had um, intellectual and developmental disabilities and the presentation is just very different. And then I started reading about adult women with autism and I had to, I wrote a note to my assistant and I was like, this is probably the kind of thing you hate um, because it's not normed, but I've been reading and can we include this in my assessment? And, um, by the time I had the assessment, I was fairly sure that, um, it would come back that I was autistic and, um, I am, I really connect with what you're saying about your parents. Like I was a rule follower. My parents say, you never gave us any trouble. Um, but I was so anxious and I don't think they knew. I don't think I had language to explain it, but I was incredibly anxious and I had a really hard time um, with social and relational stuff, especially in elementary school. Being part of church culture was great for me for that. I was this weird superstar in this suburban uh mega church. <laughs> it was like a pre-mega church. Like when I went there, it was like in the nine, 1900s. And I think when you hit 2000, you become, officially become a mega church. But um, I grew up in it and they gave me jobs. Like they, I committed myself to a full-time ministry at 14. I won awards at Upward Basketball for being most Christ-like and other places. Like it, it was, I always had it because it, it gave me a script of who to be. And I took it and it, and it became me. And it, very, it wasn't like I was masking or I was becoming something. It was me. It became me. I became that. Mm-hmm. And it was authentically who I was because it was also when I was developing and when I was growing and and my brain was forming, et cetera. So it had those those themes. So I felt like I took it more literally or seriously. And I think that those words overlap. And when we talk about fundamentalism in some ways, and they mm-hmm. don't overlap. So, but I had both. <laughs> so the literally and the seriously was there and it, the devotion then came naturally. God, that that literalism on top of literalism is so combustible. And that's how we get Calvinism. <laughs> um, 
you spoke earlier about that taking things so literally in black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, was your experience the same with that? Or I had a hard time socially at church. Um, I I had a hard time socially in a lot of settings, except my public school. I moved to public school in middle school, so I'm like the only person on the planet who enjoyed middle school. Um, <laughs> but when I moved there, our school was so big, and I made friends and. I've, I've always enjoyed school and been good at most of it. And um, it's weird to me that I kept going to church because I wasn't close to many of the other kids um, and I really wanted to be. But, you know, I was very compelled to be there by like, to be a good Christian. Mm. It's like Christianity was my special interest. And when we go to church, we're brought up there, we have to be included one way or another. Yes, there's so much exclusion in youth groups, et cetera, and people feel on the outside, but it's not like, oh, I get into ship making or Legos and then it comes with a friend group. But if your special interest is these weird ass beliefs at this church, it comes with an entire cultural, like culture, culture and community with it. Um, and I remember feeling like I, it was funny. It's the same with my high school. Now that I look back at it, I was involved. Everybody knew me. I was like on court. I uh, did morning announcements. I was involved in everything, but um, I didn't really have any super close friends outside of the church people or whatever. And so it was very wide, but it, it was not always very deep, mm-hmm. but it felt to me that I was fitting in because I was authentically middle school and high school, same friends. Um, and then in college, different friends, but in both settings, I had a small handful of friends that were really, really close. Um, some of them are still friends today. Um, And then I knew a lot of people. Well, I knew many people. Um, And in school, I was like in band and was involved. Um, What did you play? I played clarinet and I was color guard captain. Okay. The moment you said that, I'm like, I could see her in high school doing these things. Yes, that clicks. I get it. (laughs) We would have been friends. We would have been friends. Yeah, I think so. Um, like awkward, we would have been like, hey, hey, did you uh, read the last Left Behind book? And you know, I know because like you're a, <laughs> you would have been a boy. Can't be friends with boys. But it it's funny. I was the church that I grew up in. Even though it was a mega church, um, I was only friends with the girls because they were the only ones who were actually cared about mm. the, the themes of the Lord. The other boys in my group were um, so stereotypical, like bro jocks, and uh, they like went to the private school together and they played basketball and uh, they were just complete just jackasses like would push me into the girl's bathroom. One of them pantsed me and I was going to tell on him. So he promised that he would give me a Twix bar next week at Awana's and I'll tell you what, he never did. Okay. Um. <laughs> yeah. I was from a, I went to a really big uh, high school that was part of a really big district. In fact, I think now it's like the biggest district in Texas anyway. Oh my God. Um, Football was probably like insane. I mean, yeah, but like for me, football exists to book in marching band. So that's right. Um, Most of the kids at my church went to one school and I went to a different school. I went to church there because my best friend went to church there, but then she left when we were juniors to do this special program at the University of North Texas called... I don't remember what, but it, you, you do those two years and everything is dual credit. So then at the end of two years, you graduate high school and you have 60 hours. Oh, damn. And you live on campuses. It's really cool. Um, 
And I guess I kept going to church there. Well, bit one, because I thought they had it figured out and knew the right things. Um, but I liked what she had there. A lot of her family went there. She was like dedicated at that church. Everybody knew her. And um, so when we were there together, I kind of got some of that welcoming and belonging by proxy. Um, mm. But it was it was lonely when she wasn't there. It seems that a lot of churches have those families that are just kind of naturally alluring and naturally accepting and welcoming to people. And they kind of become like the cornerstones. And I remember like seeing those sort of families, like kind of what your friend, what you were mentioning with your friend, where they were just kind of had something different, you know? I, I remember always wanting to do that. And that was my goal was to, you know, find my wife and we're going to settle down and become one of those welcoming families. And it's just funny how, how much life changes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I imagine that my, maybe not my family, but one of the families I was related to at the church I went to when I was itty bitty was like that. Um, because it did feel like when I look back and I know how, I mean, that was just a couple hundred people and I was related to at least 50 of them. Maybe, maybe not 50. That's a lot. God. If you count the kids, maybe, <laughs> but you know, it's all like second cousin and my dad's aunts and things like that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. In college, at the campus, it's strange because the campus ministry I was part of was Church of Christ. And you'd think that would be very rigid. Mm-hmm. But uh, Mike and Doris were the campus ministers. I mean, technically, it was just Mike because Doris was a woman, but really. Right, 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 right. right. Yeah. Um, they finished at ACU and immediately went to Africa and were missionaries there for like 15 years came back to the States, I think, so their kids could go to school. Um, and then once their kids were launched, they actually went back to Africa to, they run a, a baby orphanage there. Wow. So they raise, it's just babies and toddlers, and then they get placed back into the community. That's cool. That's a neat process that doesn't, I don't know, that seems less like predatory and less like harmful than how some cultures yeah. handle. Yeah. I, I have heard some thoughtful criticism of like white saviorism and, and missionaries and stuff. And I, I'm not quite sure what to do with that when I think about Mike and Doris, because I think they have made significant sacrifices. You know, I was about to say that there's a, there's a way that that's done that mm-hmm. would not otherwise have care and like they can't be adopted to like white American families. The, I think they're in Tanzania. The government won't allow it. I agree with you. I think there's a difference. I think with white saviorism and I'm sorry, are they, are they still like Christian? Missionary? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. but what I was going to say is that they were so cool. Cause we'd get into questions like, so baptism and the sinner's prayer and no instruments. And they'd be like, yeah, it doesn't really matter. So they had like a wider view. Yeah. Like even though they were. So Church of Christ. yeah, even though I'm like, stand up for a Christian right now, this is weird listeners. Damn it. But what I see different between like white saviorism and what they're doing is white saviorism has a tendency of pulling out of one's culture to place into a white culture, which then makes it feel superior. There's an air of superiority of, I'm going to save you from your culture and give you our culture. But what it sounds like what they're doing is different. They're coming alongside and they're saying like, 
we're not pulling out. We're feeding back in and we're just here to do whatever. Yes, they're proselytizing, I'm assuming. And I'm going to officially say, fuck that shit. But <laughs> the I, I hear what you're saying. There, there feels like a... a um, that it, 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 there's at least going toward the right direction of what is appropriate, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are some of the kindest people that I know. And that permeated our campus ministry. Um, so even though it was Church of Christ, it feels, it, and you would expect it to be so rigid, mm-hmm. it was probably one of the healthiest communities I, as a Christian I was part of. I'm glad you brought that up because I feel a lot of, myself and our listeners, we have these experiences that we're pulling out of and we're deconstructing and questioning and going back and cutting apart and figuring out what happened. And we keep on finding these people that don't fit into this mindset of, oh, well, fundamentalism, bad, Christianity, horrible. Um, that's, not mm-hmm. how it, that's not how it works. We're going to find good people and systems that we feel or understand are inherently wrong. Life is just more complex than that, right? Yeah. Like I see people in the Facebook group talk about feeling frustrated when family members or friends, I guess, you know, say that they're praying for them or something. And I, like, I get thoughts and prayers. (laughs) And at the same time, you know, like, I know that when my dad says he's been praying for me or my, those two friends that I was talking about, who have the kind of more conservative marriages, that is an act of love on their part, even though I no longer partake. Now is probably a good time to acknowledge that my wife, who uses they them pronouns, is in seminary at Luther Seminary in Minnesota, distance learning. Um, and that is so weird. But also the the ELCA is so different. It's different. It's than different. anything I ever encountered. And I know that's hard. We talked about that before, the black and white thinking of because of our neurodiversity, that isn't always the easiest for us to hold on to. But when it comes to somebody else, here's the difference for me. I I know you were on the same page with me of more can't do progressive Christianity because it doesn't make logical sense for us. Mm -hmm. But I think the difference is whenever it's somebody else doing it. And the question is, is it consistent to love them anyway? Our answer is, well, fucking yeah, but I can't do that, but I can love somebody who does. Yeah. It's made an interesting dynamic, but like we both professed Christianity when we met um, what kind she was as well then? What kind um, of Christian was she then? Um, uh, so, uh, JJ uses they pronouns. I'm sorry. Um, shit. That's okay. Just said that. Um, they were going to TCU, which I think is Disciples of Christ, but they were coordinating outside of the seminary itself with UCC. Okay. Okay. Okay but then had a hard time getting the appropriate mentors and stuff and mm. quit seminary for a while and went back. And now they're part of the ELCA and they're going to be a deaconess. Good for them. That's really exciting. Yeah. They're almost done. I'm really, it's been a long, it's been arduous. So I'm really excited for them. I recently went on a date with someone who's very queer out, extremely liberal, but um, 
became Jesuit while going to a Jesuit Catholic mm. or going to SLU. I mean, you you know this area mm. of your time here. So it was interesting talking to him and I wasn't pulling any punches of how I communicate. And if anybody knows Brady, I could be like, you know, like unintentionally kind of an asshole when it comes to religion. Like I, I wanted to be honest and, and my honesty includes kind of, hey, don't indoctrinate your kids. And, and um, that thing really conflicted and he was able to hear where I was coming from and I was able to hear where he was coming from. So like, I'm so glad that you found that balance in your relationship. I think that's so goddamn important, you know? Yeah. I don't think it would, well, and so many levels, it wouldn't work if JJ was a fundamentalist. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, like ELCA is pretty liberal. Um, JJ is liberal for the ELCA. And the primary theme seems to be truly is more about social justice than about proselytizing people. And I, I can, I can join in on that. I've noticed recently, I've recently got on TikTok, you know, because I felt like TikTok needed another 30-year-old white male on there. (laughs) (sighs) Uh, But I've re like started to bump against a lot of progressive Christian clergy where I was like, oh, we would be on the same page with it, but then we weren't. And to find out that they were like very much like, um, oh, you're ex-Christian. We don't want to hear that. Oh, you're not a Christian anymore. Um, and it was, oh, you're a conversion therapist or a conversion therapy survivor who left the faith. And we're very like discriminatory, but what it sounds like with JJ is that they don't, they would not operate that way at all. I feel that some people are going to be narrative centered and others are going to be human centered. And the way to like tell which ones are which is just by their actions and how they interact with people and how they deal with situations. And it's unfortunate when we find these clergy that we thought would be human oriented, but when it's really down to the wire, go toward the narratives. Um, Finding that spirituality and religion that focuses on the human side, social justice, and we don't really, we're not here to, who cares about our fucking narratives? We're here to help people. That's so affirming and helpful. And I don't know. I think it's beautiful that you as an atheist, and I know it's hard. I know that it probably like creates tension at times and questions and just like, what the fuck? But I think that's beautiful that like those differences can meet and find what's really important. And that's just caring about people, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the, let's see. So um, one of they don't call them internships, but I'm going to call it an internship um, was at, so JJ did an internship at a hospital here in, in, well, it was in Dallas. We're more in Fort Worth, but it was in Dallas and made a friend there named James. And I don't know what denomination he was with at the time, but uh, he is now a humanist. Um, oh, what's the word? What's the word when you work at a hospital and you're the priest? Chaplain. Chaplain. He's a humanist chaplain. Oh, that's so cool. Oh my God. That's a thing. That's a thing. That's a thing in Texas. God, that makes me happy to even know that exists in Texas specifically. I know. 
So I think it was at Harvard or something, there was an individual who was head of their chaplain, whatever, and he's human. Do you know what I'm talking about with that? Yeah, I think it was Harvard. The Harvard, um, I think he's also called a chaplain, the chaplain of, I mean, just the chaplain of Harvard, I think. And you're one of the few people that I've interviewed in the same time zone. <laughs> we're like the forgotten times of central where those oh. weird, we're those weird people that have to have their special television hour, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, you know, who's weird is Arizona who like doesn't follow daylight savings or something. Uh, get out of here. So like, half the year, they're two hours apart and half the year, they're one hour apart. That's just goofballs. But I don't, it's just nice to know that like, it's happening into places that we would expect it. So eventually it'll become a theme here for, you know, me in St. Louis, I guess it's a little, it sounds like Fort Worth has it more going on than we do. Uh, but I just, I love to know that that's a thing that's happening. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Um, hmm. Yeah. It's strange to me that JJ wanted to do seminary because it seems to me like what they want to do is social work. Um, but they are really committed to adding in the spirituality aspect. Mm. I think the spirituality aspect is really important to JJ, but not so much the supernatural aspect. Because they're drawn towards empathy work with a specialty in the human superpower of storytelling, the only thing that's really available professionally, specifically, is super liberal progressive. Christianity. Does that make sense? But I, I'm curious if that's that's part of because just storytelling is such like a um, special thing to me. Because we, you and I, you know, spectrum, we understand the point of being literal, but also that means we understand the point of metaphors in a mm -hmm. literal sense, which sometimes gives us better understanding of metaphors. Does that make? Mm -hmm. Did I just pull that out of my ass, or does that make sense? Well, I think what you're saying is um, literal matters. And metaphors are sometimes more powerful narratives for the mm. things that matter. And especially when they're self-aware metaphors, not ones that are like, am I a metaphor or am I real? You won't know until you're dead. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> those are more, that's kind of a, that's a, that's a shaky thing. <laughs> and I think, I think that's, I think for what I perceive is happening for a lot of progressive Christians is a lot of like, well, what I believe is in the metaphor. And I'm like, but if you don't believe the supernatural stuff exists, then the metaphor you're believing is no less odd than, you know, ancient Greek and Roman mythology. And that's kind of where I was like, you know, I think I'm done. Adding that, I call it radical objectivity of question of looking at it with those other cultures in mind. And saying, okay, well, what makes this different than that? Or what would be said to somebody? If I was born in this other country, how would I be deconstructed? Or how would I want that? What questions would I want that other person to question about their religion? What questions should I be asking? You know what I mean? Like that sort of objectivity was really built into my deconstruction. And I believe that some of it is just kind of like naturally because of my neurodiversity and over analytical brain that's always going of putting it through all these different simulations and questions, mm -hmm. um, a test almost. Um, and when it doesn't meet those criteria, then I'm like, 
even if I'm emotionally attached to it, it's time to throw it up. Do you operate in a similar way? Yeah. Like, and I think I take with that. And I think this is because I I've had to find a way to be respectful of my wife. Um, You know, like if somebody from a different culture who practiced another religion, like if I just happened upon them on this, you know, I would not be an asshole to them about their religion. Right. And I kind of carried that with me as far as interacting with like friends who are still part of Christianity, my parents, um, like people get to practice the religion, like people get to have belief, even if. I don't. And that does get tricky because like, what about when it's harmful to others? I'm still figuring that out. It's hard to define what's harmful for others if they're in a different culture. When going back to Star Trek, I promise this is the last time I'll bring it up, but they have the prime directive, Mm -hmm. this idea that you, oh, you get it. Hell yeah. Um, I don't need to describe the prime directive to you, but (laughs) you know, that you don't interfere with other cultures as they're evolving. I never understood that as a Christian because I was like, what about missionary work? They need to know the gospel. And that was always me saying what is harmful or not for them. Um, Not understanding their cultures or things because the culture that I was from was inherently superior, like you inherently Mm -hmm. had supremacy built into it. And changing that mindset took a minute, but we're there and it's nice, isn't it? I occasionally miss it. I occasionally miss um, community and connecting with things I think are sacred. Um, but mostly it's a relief on that note, (laughs) probably a good time to close, but, um, is there anything else, any other questions that I'm not asking you that I should have that you can think of? (laughs) No, good. Then that means I did my job. All right. (laughs) Um, listeners, thank you so much for listening. Um, and as you know, we close every episode with a little saying, and that is if you don't go to church, Sunday is just a second Saturday. Thank you all for listening. And Michelle, thank you so much for sharing yourself and your story today. It was so fucking good. Chef's kiss. See you next time. This has been another episode of the Life After Podcast with Brady Harding. Go to our Facebook to find our secret community, and any help on my GoFundMe is greatly appreciated. Yourself, out of mental health and living itself. Speak for yourself, your marriage not a testimony. Don't believe the church is a bribe, but she owe me alimony. I'm a pony up and stick a feather in your ceremony. Wearing weddings out, I call it Yankee Doodle matrimony. And I'm only getting started, my tongue is fire. Fighting gaslighting leaders like your ways are not higher. I don't need a choir to bring down the entire empire. You threw the gasoline, I'm just spitting matches through the wire. Up, go left, the gals.